Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. We'll bring you the facts and some timely commentary from policymakers, experts, and grassroots leaders from across the country. This week, we have two experts from two of Washington's most respected think tanks, Jim Capretta of the American Enterprise Institute and Isabel Sawhill of the Brookings Institution. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman will also join the conversation. And first up is Jim, Jim Capretta. Jim is a resident fellow and holds the Milton Friedman Chair at AEI, where he studies healthcare, entitlements, the US budget, as well as global trends in aging, health, and retirement programs. Uh, before coming to AEI, he spent 16 years in public service, including as Associate Director of the White House's Office and Management and Budget, where from 2001 to 2004, he was responsible for all healthcare, social security, welfare, labor, and education issues. Earlier, he served as a senior health policy analyst at the U.S. Uh, Senate Budget Committee and at the U.S. Uh, House Committee on Ways and Means. Jim and Tori, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks, Bob. Thank you. Well, it's not like there's nothing going on with the budget. Um, this week, uh, President Biden is going to be showing us a little bit of his budget strategy, I guess, with the infrastructure plan and, uh, and the so-called skinny budget, which will show us his uh, appropriation levels. Jim, um, what, uh, what are your thoughts about, what, what is significant about a first presidential budget? What does it tell us about priorities and where things are headed? Well, it, it doesn't always work out this way, but in, in uh, many, many times a new president comes in, their first budget sort of sets the tone for their, their entire first term, just because you know, in the first year or so, maybe two years of an administration is when they think they might be able to have the political momentum to get a lot done. And so they tend to lay out pretty clearly in their first budget document, the big things they'd like to achieve. And so the things that have some consequence in terms of changing taxing taxes and spending and fiscal outcomes, you know, you usually get a pretty good glimpse of what they might be in, in a, a president's first budget plan. Uh, and then after the first year, they tend to kind of, you know, make more incremental changes on the outline they already announced. So when there's a, especially when there's a change in parties at the presidential level, you know, and you're anticipating a big change in direction in terms of policy for the country or what proposes policy, they try to push that momentum at the very beginning of their term. And, and this isn't the only way they do it, but a budget is one of the ways they, they try to do that. Yeah, I think back like the the Reagan budget, not that I can remember that far back, but I remember the <laughs> Reagan budget and the, the Clinton budget. Of course, the first one was really significant and the Bush budget uh, was was one that uh, 
you know, people were, you know, people tend to fight about it for the next eight years. <laughs> right. Sort of sets right. The tone. Uh, right. Exactly. And I, you one, know, I, I think this budget, we're only getting the skinny one this, this week. So we're not getting the full budget. We probably won't get that for another month or so, maybe six weeks. But um, I think the Biden budget, whenever it's fully pl put in place, will we'll have some consequence because it's, there's a lot of big things in play. Well, elaborate on that, because I think that the, the context here is really, really important. I mean, we, we are sort of transitioning from COVID relief to the regular budget. And I think a lot of people, you know, could could really lose track of the fact that we haven't done any budgeting yet. Well, this has just been one big emergency spending, <laughs> uh, even with two trillion dollars. And so now let's get around to the budget. But um, yeah, so talk about the the, you know, the context here. Well, you know, we've had a just in a very unusual year plus now of just massive emergency spending and a very deep economic dislocation. And so just total upheaval in terms of the economy and fiscal policy. And I, I don't I don't disagree that a lot of emergency measures were necessary to try to deal with a calamity of this size. So there was going to be a you know both parties have been part of this, realizing they had to do a lot. Remember, $4 trillion was enacted during the Trump presidency and another $2 trillion now. So it's not like this was a, a one party or the other. Both parties realized they had to kind of move ahead. Um, having said all that, where are we at this point fiscally? You know, in a certain sense, I'm not even sure the policymaking community really knows, right? There's so much, so much has been thrown up and, and done, and uh, now they're talking about a huge package of infrastructure and new taxes. So you need a budget. Somebody needs to put it all together in a, into a big picture here and say, where are we going with all this? Because as you know, better than anybody, uh, you and Tori both know that uh, this, we're already in deep trouble fiscally. And, you know, so how does this all fit with the larger fiscal problems the country has? You know, someone's got to start talking about that. And hopefully a president's budget does that to some degree. There are also some pretty uh, interesting fiscal challenges ahead as well. I mean, first and foremost, with respect to the discretionary budget, this is the first year in a decade that we've been operating without a rudder, so to speak, the discretionary spending caps that were part of the Budget Control Act. So we really don't have any guidance looking forward at, at what the discretionary budget is going to be until the president puts a, a marker out there. Um, but then there are a lot of other uh, issues, uh, for example, that the, the tax policies that were uh, uh, temporarily enacted as part of various COVID relief packages. Um, there are some uh, fiscal cliffs ahead regarding, um, you know, for example, Medicare uh, trust fund financing for, for Part A and uh, the highway trust fund uh, financing. So that, that this, this budget, even if we're just starting with the discretionary skinny budget, uh, is going to throw a lot of markers out there for the future and it has a lot of obstacles to deal with, right? Uh, uh, very much so. I think the the uh, big question on the table really is: Does the Biden administration, does the president, support reinstating caps at all? You know, uh, does the Democratic Party and the Congress want to go back to a structure of caps? And even if they're at higher levels that they view as better, you know, are we going to try to have some kind of an agreement about? you know, are there limits on discretionary spending annually? And I think, you know, there may not be. They may just throw out the whole budget process that has existed for 30 years and kind of just sort of do much more of an ad hoc decision-making system. I wouldn't recommend that, but that they, may, they may push in that direction. 
And with respect to the taxes, yeah, I think there's a lot in play there. I will hear a little bit more about that tomorrow when the president gives his speech on infrastructure and taxes. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a lot of things in play. Uh, I, you know, the Democrats in the Congress have to decide what they do about the middle class parts of the Trump tax cuts. Not all of the tax cuts that Trump put in place were for, you know, corporations and higher income taxpayers. There's a lot of middle class tax cuts. And so I doubt that the Biden folks will want to raise, you know, have those taxes go back up again. So, mm -hmm. you know, some of those things are a lot of those things are, are in play and a budget is supposed to answer many of those questions. Do you think there's some talk about uh, breaking the budget up into big packages? Um, we were talking about, uh, we'll get some infrastructure news this week and then maybe some of the social programs will come uh, later on. Uh, is that a transparent way of doing anything? I mean, do you think that that can, can obscure the cost of things if they're disaggregated like that? Yes. And, you know, that may be one reason why they might try to do that. You can imagine, let's imagine they did a, a big infrastructure package and they try to cobble together $3 trillion in, in taxes and other offsets to pay for it. And then they just put a sort of a dot, dot, dot asterisk line in the budget that says, and by the way, we'll do another big package later in the year. We don't know the size and dimensions of it, but, you know, we're planning another you know, so, social infrastructure package for, you know, the summer or something. Um, you know, it kind of obscures the fact that the combined tax increase and the combined spending increase would be even greater than $3 trillion, right? And so I hope they don't do that. I hope they try to, you know, when you lay out a budget in May, presumably they may do it in May, one, one hopes that they put all their cards on the table. So yeah, that's two packages, but here are the policies that go into both. And, uh, I think they may have to do that because if they want to pass both things this year, you know, it takes a long time to get these trains moving. So you got to kind of start pushing them, pushing them along. This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Jim Capretta of the American Enterprise Institute and Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition. And Tori, I'll kick it back to you for the next question. Um, one of the breaking news items uh, over the, the weekend was the fact that uh, Majority Leader Schumer in the Senate is asking for the Senate parliamentarian to bless a, a procedure that would allow the Democrats another shot at reconciliation under the current budget agreement. Um, I guess my question is, is, is uh, one, do you, what do you think that they'll be allowed to do that? And second, do you think that Democrats should pursue that strategy? Uh, well, I, 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 I'm a little bit perplexed about what they think this might get them out of. I suppose, it, I suppose what they're trying to do here is be able to move straight to another reconciliation bill without having to pass the fiscal 22 budget resolution, in part because passing a fiscal 22 budget resolution would raise all the questions that some of which we've just been discussing, you know, do you reinstate caps? Do you, you know, do Democrats, what, what is the level of deficit spending the Democrats want to vote for in a budget resolution? You know, now they passed this very skinny budget resolution earlier this year, but everybody kind of just saw it as a pro forma thing to kind of get to the reconciliation bill. 
So now, uh, you know, if the parliamentarian then says, okay, you can do another reconciliation bill under a reinterpretation of, of a revision to a budget kind of thing. Um, I, 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 it just sort of takes, it's one more step down the road of making the budget process in the Congress completely disconnected from fiscal policy as a, as a matter. They're just using it to get to reconciliation. It's the only purpose of the budget resolution. That was never the case even 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 30 years ago. And so I think if they wanna just trash the entire process and say, we wanna to get to around the filibuster in the Senate with reconciliation and have a way of doing that, that's what this will become and both parties will just default to it. So uh, it's just one more piece to the puzzle of our, our policymaking process kind of just being dysfunctional and you know, one hopes that there's a, a way of getting back to rational planning and fiscal planning and organize, organized decision-making. But, you know, the temptation to go straight to a, a party line vote on a bill that, uh, that they want to pass desperately, you know, is very, very high. I'm actually a little surprised. Go ahead, Bob. Uh, I was going to go to something else. So if you want to follow up on that, go ahead. Uh, my only follow-up was just an observation, uh, you know, the law of unintended consequences, you know, that the Democrats were the first to change the, the filibuster as it pertained to executive nominations, and it ended up, you know, sort of biting them uh, on the back end when it allowed, uh, you know, the, the Senate Republicans were allowed to, to follow suit and put three Supreme Court justices uh, on, on the court with a simple majority vote. I'm kind of surprised that they'd be pursuing another strategy this time affecting the pace of legislation, which I think could also have unintended consequences that would not be favorable to them in the long run. So it was just, it was merely just an, an observation. Be careful what you wish for sometimes as the yeah. saying goes. Uh, one, one, back in the days when people did, you know, do budget rules that were supposed to accomplish policy goals as well. Uh, or advanced policy goals, we had caps, which we've talked about, and we had PAYGO. And PAYGO meaning pay-as-you-go for any new entitlement program or tax cut that is supposed to be offset somewhere else in the budget so that they, it did not widen the existing uh, budget deficit in the long-term long gap, which is infinitely greater now than it was when PAYGO was uh, first installed and back in the 90s. But it raises a question, um, how much of President Biden's agenda, non-COVID related, uh, will he want to pay for uh, and how will they do it? Um, we'll get some clue to that uh, this week, Jim, but, but what are your thoughts about uh, tax increases. I mean, it, it seems to me you would have to, you can't, you can't lay off that much spending if you're going to have put a $3 trillion infrastructure package on the table and say you're going to pay for it somehow. So um, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, I do think that they, they, the appetite for more deficit spending to, in response to sort of the perceived or real needs of the country at this point, I think is maybe kind of reached the end of the road. In other words, Congress has approved $6 trillion in the last year in emergency legislation to respond to the pandemic and the economic problems associated with it. There's never been anything like that before. 
So there's already a, a growing number of people, economists who are saying, okay, you know, great, that's gonna supercharge the economy. It may get us out of where we are, but let's not do any more of that. We probably reached the end of the road there. And I think that kind of sentiment is gonna spill into the policymaking process, which is why you hear the president and his team saying they're gonna pay for this $3 trillion with a big, big tax increase and maybe some tightening of drug pricing policies. So I think those are the two places they want to go. And uh, they're going to try to get as that, the offsets as big, as big as they could possibly get it from those two sources and use that to pay for a big infrastructure package. I think that's sort of where they're headed. Um, and what do I think about it? I think they're probably overestimating. I mean, it, it's a 50-50 Senate and they have three votes in the House. And they want to do this, they're, you know, they're signaling pretty strongly, they want to do this on a partisan basis and just do it their way. Uh, I think it's possible they could get it done, but it's not for sure, because this is going to be tougher sledding than a non-offset bill. It's a little, it's one thing to say, I'm going to spend $2 trillion and borrow the money and send out a bunch of checks. It's another thing to say, you're going to go up against all of the country's biggest corporations and say, we're going to raise, you know, I, I saw today, you're probably just out of those companies, you know, over a trillion dollars. So they may not be all as eager to send that money to Washington as, as the folks, <laughs> as the folks are currently thinking. And so, you know, there'll be a fight, you know, and uh, it's possible they can win and still get a big, big bill through on a partisan basis. But I think it's going to be tougher sledding than maybe some people are thinking at the moment. It's, it's kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you, if you pay for it and it's big tax increases, you're going to get hit for big tax increases. If you don't pay for it, you're going to get hit for big deficit spending. Welcome uh, to policy making. Isn't that why we elect our folks? I mean, they, you know, leadership, right? So you got to kind of convince this is the whole, I, I, I do wonder a little bit about politicians who get involved and say, oh, this is terrible. I'm going to have to, you know, I might lose my election over, you know, doing something big and bold. Well, I mean, you want to do something, you know? There's not everybody's just going to say, go, okay, fine. You know, there's going to be a big fight about it, an argument, and that's, that's the way democracy works. Well, it, uh, I hope it does. Uh, otherwise, we just, <laughs> anyway, otherwise we, to work, right? I mean, the, the default mechanism is we just keep racking up trillion dollar, two trillion dollar deficits, no choices, uh, and we declare that the whole thing will pay for itself. Um, somehow or other. I don't think they, I, I don't, even that, I don't think that what I was trying to say at the top is I, I think the, the room for that argument is also narrowed quite substantially. And so I, I'm not sure that gets a majority anymore either. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful if, uh, if magic thinking is uh, narrowing, that would be good. I actually, I tend to agree with you. I think that it, the, the numbers may uh, finally be getting some attention. Mm -hmm. uh, this is Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I've been talking with Jim Capretta of the American Enterprise Institute and Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition. We've been discussing the importance of President Biden's first budget and the prospects of bipartisan cooperation. <clears throat> well, uh, Jim, thanks for joining the program. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. And in this segment, I'll be talking with Bell Sawhill of the Brookings Institution and Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition. Bell Sawhill is a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution. 
She served as vice president and director of the economic studies program from 2003 to 2006, and as co-director of the Center on Children and Families from 2007 to 2015. Prior to joining Brookings, Bell was a senior fellow at the Urban Institute, and she also served as an associate director at the Office of Management and Budget from 1993 to 1995, where her responsibilities included all of the human resource programs of the federal budget. That adds up to about one third of the budget. She's authored a number of books. Uh, her most recent, A New Contract with the Middle Class with uh, co-author Richard Reeves, which was released just in December. And we'll be talking a little bit about that. Uh, Bell, welcome to Facing the Future. Great to be here, Bob. Remember you know, our uh, earlier uh, war on, on deficits, budget deficits together. I know. One thing I didn't mention in your bio that uh, you'll have to add is you were a founding member of the fiscal wake-up tour. <laughs> with, we, with, we obviously uh, failed uh, to yeah. wake the country up to the importance of uh, debt and deficits. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happened, but we did tour the country for about five years uh, on that. Um, but, you know, when I look at the issues that uh, you have studied over your career, uh, a lot of them have to do with family policy, with the well-being of children, the interaction with the federal go uh, government and how it all ties in with the economy. And it must seem like this is your moment um, because in the, in the latest uh, COVID relief bill, maybe a, a funny place for it to surface, but there have been a number of new initiatives on um, anti-poverty, pro-children, pro-family um, initiatives, policies. And I'm just kind of wondering if you think this is a, an opportunity to expand some of those or rethink how they do them? Well, it's a great question. And I guess my um, answer would be, first of all, to make a big distinction between temporary uh, support for families and more permanent forms of support. So as you know, the COVID relief bill, the rescue package that was just enacted, that's the $1.9 trillion, uh, is a temporary um, bill. And of course, there are a lot of people on the left who would like to see some of the provisions in it expanded. For example, the uh, child tax credit, which is being increased from $2,000 per child to $3,000 per child if you're a school age and uh, $3,600 if you have preschool children. So lots of people are looking at that and saying, isn't that terrific because it has the child poverty rate. And that's a big um, uh, accomplishment to have the child poverty rate. And I'm all in favor of that, but I do want to point out that um, that is a one-time effect. In other words, that's looking at a measure of poverty for one year and saying, if we spend a lot of money on a lot of families, uh, we can reduce the child poverty rate. It's, it's not very well targeted. And of course, a lot of the other family support that's in this uh, relief bill, such as the 1400 stimulus checks are also not very well targeted. So, and then you have the unemployment insurance and so forth. 
And I'm all in favor of doing those kinds of things for families in times of great need. And during a pandemic and during the recession that the pandemic has caused, there is huge need. But that doesn't mean I would argue for all of that as permanent policy. Uh, I would not. I'm much more in favor of teaching people to fish than giving them fish. So I favor investments in education. I favor uh, work condition supports, and uh, such as the earned income tax credit. And I would not um, be in favor of major expansions of unconditional cash transfers to families. Is there a, very, uh... Amongst other things, they're very expensive. But on top of that, I really think that in our American culture, uh, people want to be self-supporting. Um, they want to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. And work is a very strong value in America. Uh, I could give you the data on that. It's quite amazing. If you ask um, in a, people in a survey, uh, do you think work is a really important uh, value? In America, over 70% of responses of people say, yes, it is. In Germany, that's 50%. In France, it's 25%. So this is a big difference. We are a work-oriented culture. Well, as, uh, as you know, pretty soon President Biden will be putting out a, a budget and you know, we're beginning to read some things about what will be in it. There's certainly a, a major infrastructure package. What would your advice be uh, to the Biden administration about the, the infrastructure proposal as it relates to families and, and the education proposals that are to come? Well, first of all, I very much welcome uh, President Biden's emphasis on the human infrastructure and on the what they call the care economy. Uh, we are headed towards being a care economy, uh, both because we're aging and because uh, women now hold half of all payroll jobs in the economy. And so most people have uh, to struggle with balancing both work and family. And we have to um, make adjustments. Uh, for that reason. So it's interesting that there's been so much focus on the child tax credit, which is an unconditional cash transfer to families with children versus the child care tax credit, which is a tax credit that goes to help you pay for child care, but only if you're working or in school and need it for that reason. And so the child care tax credit um, is being increased by quite a lot under the Biden um, uh, proposed agenda. And that I think needs to get more attention. We know that women have been dropping out of the labor force in greater numbers than men during this pandemic because of their care responsibilities. We also know that the US has a lower labor force participation rate of women than many other advanced countries now. And as Chairman uh, Powell at the Fed said recently, and I was glad to see that with someone like him talking about this and not you know, someone like me, uh, the, the research now suggests, quite good research, 
that one of the reasons that labor force participation of women is growing more rapidly in other countries than in the US is because we don't do very much uh, in terms of childcare, paid leave, and those other kinds of family supports. So, um, so we do need to pay attention to all of that. Corey, you wanna yeah, jump and, in here? Yeah, and um, Bill, I just wanted to follow up on, on what you just said there. Um, labor force participation is important, right? Because it's one of the drivers of our, our GDP, our economic growth, right? Absolutely. Good. Um, I had a question about minimum wage. Um, do you think that, I, I know that it was a very important piece of the, the Democrats platform. Um, they were not allowed to pass the minimum wage via reconciliation, which means they're, if they're gonna make any kind of progress on increasing the minimum wage, they're going to have to find some sort of compromise that allows it to move through the Senate with 60 votes. Um, my question to you is, do you think this should be a priority for the Democrats? Do you think that, that it's important to raise the minimum wage or are states doing enough uh, on their own to raise their own minimum wage such that the federal minimum wage perhaps doesn't need to be addressed? And if it does need to be addressed, do you see uh, the outlines, the contours of a compromise that might get those 60 votes in the Senate? First of all, I do think the minimum wage needs to be raised. It's $7.25 an hour, and it hasn't been raised since, I think, 2009. And it hasn't kept pace with inflation, much less with productivity growth over this period. I saw an analysis from the Economic Policy Institute recently that showed that if the minimum wage had kept, uh, kept pace with productivity growth, uh, it would now be $23 an hour. Wow. Wow. Now, I'm not going to argue for $23 an hour, nor do I think that uh, it's politically feasible. It's just an interesting uh, benchmark. Uh, I think that um, we should raise the minimum wage, uh, maybe not all the way to $15 an hour at the federal level. Uh, as you just said, states uh, have also raised their minimums, about half of them, I think. And um, we shouldn't necessarily have a uniform minimum all across the country because the cost of living varies from state to state and city to city. So what works in New York City um, might be too high for someone who lives in a small town in, in Arkansas. So in this our book, uh, A New Contract with the Middle Class, Richard Reeves and I argue for $12 an hour. Uh, that's an arbitrary figure, but it's something around that level that I think might attract enough uh, votes uh, to get this through Congress, especially if it's phased in slowly. I mean, you don't want to go in half the states that don't have a state minimum, all of a sudden, very quickly, from 725 to 12 or certainly not 15. So, but I think if you phase it in gradually, so businesses and consumers and other groups have a chance to adjust, uh, then uh, we should definitely do it. But by the way, the public is overwhelmingly in favor of an increased minimum wage. In Florida, it was on the ballot um, in 2020, and that's not exactly a liberal state, and they voted overwhelmingly for a higher minimum wage. Mm -hmm. 
This is Facing the Future. I'm Bob Bixby, and I'm talking with Bill Sawhill, a senior fellow in economic studies at the Brookings Institution and Tory Gorman's uh, policy director of the Concord Coalition. Um, you know, we talked about making some of the current, the, the, some of the current uh, programs permanent that were temporary. Whether we do that or um, come up with some uh, new programs that uh, that address these issues, you come up with the uh, the old fiscal problem that we used to talk about on the fiscal wake up tour, which is how do you pay for this? And you've been pretty, uh, pretty candid and forthcoming and uh, creative and coming up with uh, some ideas on pay fors. Um, so how would this uh, kind of an agenda be paid for without increasing the, the deficits? Well, as uh, we used to say all the time, Bob, when we were working uh, on the um, deficit and going around the country and talking about it, uh, there are two main ways to pay for it. One is tax increases and the other is slowing the growth uh, in entitlement programs like Medicare and Social Security. And I'm still in favor of both. And by the way, um, we are increasingly getting what we spend on the elderly versus what we spend on children way out of whack. Uh, most of the uh, budget on the spending side, as you know, is not devoted to children and families, it's devoted to um, the elderly. So we could you know, raise uh, the retirement age, and I think we should. And in my 2018 book called The Forgotten Americans, I argue for raising the retirement age. But let's talk about taxes, uh, because it's absolutely essential that we raise taxes. We're a wealthy country, and we have a lot of inequality, and we have a lot of people at the very top who are pulling away from everyone else. And we need to tax wealth and not work. And to tax wealth and not work, we've got to get to um, putting higher taxes on people who have very high incomes and a lot of assets. And I think you're going to see a set of proposals from the Biden administration that do exactly that. And that is not going to get through um, Congress on a bipartisan basis, clearly. So that is going to have to be done through reconciliation. And it's going to have to be done in a way that will um, unify the Democratic caucus. So I think that's going to be a terribly interesting debate. Um, we can get into it. I mean, I think the proposal to raise the corporate rate from 21% to 28%, it would still be lower than what it used to be, which was 35%. So I think that's a good compromise. I think proposals to uh, tax capital gains, more like ordinary income, especially for the very wealthy, are right. And I especially like the idea of um, taxing uh, capital gains at death. Uh, that's a huge loophole right now. It brings in a lot of revenue. Uh, I think we should raise the estate tax uh, as well uh, right now, you don't pay any estate tax at all as an individual unless you have more than $11 million in assets. Um, I think some um, exemption from estate taxes is totally reasonable, but $11 million is ridiculous. 
Tori? So I'm curious about something. I want to push back a little bit on, on the tax increases. One of, one of the things that we've learned uh, about taxing corporations and taxing high net worth individuals is that money is very mobile. Um, corporations can either shift their profits overseas or if they can shove their, 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 their tax liability downstream into higher prices. And so the tax incidence doesn't necessarily fall on the corporations. And high net worth individuals, they can uh, you know, hide assets overseas. They can change how their assets are held um, from something, for example, artwork, um, jewelry, uh, real estate, you know, things that are not, not necessarily as easy to tax as say capital gains. So um, do we still think that that is a, is that still a, a successful revenue policy? Is that something that's gonna generate a sustained reliable tax base? Well, all of the uh, concerns you raise are real, of course. And um, I don't in any way want to minimize them. But I do want to point out that um, they are a concern, but shouldn't stop us from moving in this direction. Uh, for example, most of the um, experts on tax policy, such as the Congressional Budget Office, and I believe the Joint Committee on Taxation as well, uh, assume that the incidence of the corporate tax is about 20% uh, on uh, labor and 80% on capital. Uh, so, you know, that's, a, that's good enough for me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can't get at every single um, loss of uh, tax revenue because of game playing and accountants and lawyers getting mixed up in the game and wealthy people uh, are very good at doing that as you suggested. But that to me is something we should work on tightening up as best we can and then just live with the rest of it. It's not an argument for not uh, asking the very wealthy to pay their fair share. In one of my recent books, I actually did a calculation of how much income um, the wealthiest people in our society would have left if we raised their marginal tax rate to 50%. And Biden is only talking about going to 39.6, by the way. And the answer was that even after paying a much higher tax rate, they would still have take-home income of $900,000 a year. I think this was the top 1%, as I remember. Now, you know, who can't live on $900,000 a year? I sure don't know anybody who can't live on $900,000 a year. So I'm following up on, on taxes. Do you have an opinion on a value-added tax? I have a very strong opinion on a value-added tax. <laughs> it's interesting when we compare the U.S. to Europe, uh, Europe obviously has higher tax rates and a much stronger safety net than we do. And overall, counting both tax and benefit programs together, um, a more progressive system. But on the tax side alone, because they rely so heavily on a VAT and less heavily on income taxes, uh, they actually uh, have a simpler uh, and I think better tax system. So uh, Richard Reeves and I, in our latest book, uh, call for reducing income taxes on the middle class and replacing them with taxes on wealth 
and taxes on um, consumption, which means a VAT, and um, I think that and taxes on uh, carbon uh, to deal with the environment. So um, it, we show, I think, that if you could make that switch from taxing income, which is basically taxing earnings when we're talking about middle class incomes, you would be moving from taxing work to taxing wealth and taxing carbon, which is a bad and is leading to climate change and taxing consumption. And when you tax consumption, you're encouraging people to save and invest. And I think we need more saving and investment, both in the private sector and in the public sector. Well, we're going to have to have you back to talk more about this because we've, we've opened uh, several interesting doors, not just to family policy, but to tax policy as well. I think there are going to be some really big debates about this, as indeed there should be, uh, over the course of the coming months as the Biden administration tries to implement its agenda. But, but for now, um, thank you for joining us. Uh, good, great to see you again. Thank you for having me, Bob. Uh, wonderful to see you as well. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. I've been talking to Bell Sawhill from the Brookings Institution and Tori Gorman, Policy Director of the Concord Coalition. I'll be back after these short messages with uh, a few words about what happens when surprises come out of dull, dusty government report. Welcome back to Facing the Future. This is Bob Bixby. You know, it's a cliche to talk about government agency reports as dull, dusty, or dry. Take your pick. I read a lot of government reports, and in general, I can't argue with those descriptions. But sometimes a government agency puts out a dull, dusty, and dry report that contains some really eye-popping stuff. I found that out last week when I picked up a new report from the Government Accountability Office, or the GAO, called The Nation's Fiscal Health. If you're not familiar with the GAO, you should be. It's a nonpartisan agency of the government celebrating its uh, 100th anniversary this year, and its mission is to help Congress oversee federal programs and operations to ensure accountability for the American people. In this report, GAO's Di uh, diagnosis was a familiar one. Population aging and rising per, per capita healthcare costs are projected to drive spending growth faster than revenue growth. And the result is perpetually rising deficits and debt. You hear a lot about that on Facing the Future every week. So I was basically skimming the document as a refresher until I got to a section looking at how much spending would have to be cut or taxes raised to meet a range of debt to GDP targets within 30 years. According to GAO, if Congress and the president wanted a debt to GDP ratio of 100% in 2030, that is about where it is now, they would need to cut projected spending by 20% annually or increase projected revenues annually <laughs> by 27%. Frankly, a mix of the two would be required, even targeting a debt to GDP ratio of 140% at the end of 30 years, far exceeding any previous level in the nation's history, would require annual spending cuts of 
about 14% or annual revenue increases of 18.5% or some mix of the two. That certainly got my attention because it means our spending and tax policies are so far out of whack and the gap is projected to grow by so much that we need to make heroic policy changes on both the spending and tax side of the budget just to keep the debt from skyrocketing over the next 30 years. I don't know if President Biden and members of Congress have read this GAO report, but I hope they do before they decide whether to add trillions more to the debt. And the next time you pick up a dull, dusty, dry government report hoping to find something exciting, be careful what you wish for. This is Bob Bixby. Thanks for listening to Facing the Future. 